Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April 11th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Sylvie. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Welcome to a rainy Sunday afternoon, uh, suspended Mets play edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. And what can I say? Major League Baseball continues the Mets on this one. Uh, the mechanics of making the decision to go out and play a game that anybody with an iPhone and a weather app probably could have told you that it was going to be tough to make it through. I think on the note of... 2021 statistical uncertainty because of COVID protocol and potential COVID outbreaks and potential quarantining where just like you saw last week where a team might lose a weekend series or a week, God forbid, hopefully again, that's going to be as we go further into this season, more and more a thing of the past. I think you're going to see teams try to jam games in double headers of seven innings, those little league rules. I know that that is not always ideal. So not much to say there, um, but since we were together on Friday for the short, you know, and I was debating, you know, how I was going to do the next show because 
Sometimes you don't want to just do back-to-back real quick. But I thought this show was important because the real theme and the featured guest is a gentleman by the name of Greg Larson. And Greg has a book out called Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir, clubbybook.com. Now, Greg has nothing to do with the Mets. He worked for the Aberdeen Ironbirds down in Maryland, an Orioles affiliate. In the old, it was a while back in 2012 to 2014, uh, in the old New York Penn League. The New York Penn League doesn't exist anymore. So you do know that there's a connection with the Brooklyn Cyclones. But with minor league baseball returning and in the talk about everything that's going on, especially with the Mets' change of ownership, free agency, roster building, and then spring training, and now the start of what we hope is a fun regular season, we really haven't been talking at all about that minor league baseball's back, but it's different. The traditional uh, International League and Pacific Coast League are gone. You're basically left with these sanitized uh, versions of AAA East, you know, West, et cetera, et cetera. There's been some consolidation, and there's uh, some cities right now one close to home that used to be a Yankees affiliate in Trenton that no longer have affiliate baseball, which has been sad and been uh, a topic of debate. And then, obviously, where player development is going. Player development's going where the organizations view it more like labs. There's this alternate site now where you have simulated games and you're keeping guys close. And I'm guessing that as the season starts and May 4th, it looks like they were homogenous up and down May 4th, the season starts, September 19th, it ends. I guess there'll be postseason after that, so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, you have consistency up and down the minor league seasons. The short seasons are gone. Some of the quirkiness of all the different levels and the confusion seem to be gone. And it's a new minor league baseball uh, landscape, and it's been a while. And I know that in so many cities, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, sometimes on summer vacation, I'd go with my family to places like Scranton, Rochester, uh, Pawtucket, just to see minor league teams, and uh, you know Norfolk one year when the Mets affiliate back in 1994 was back then in Norfolk, and it was a way to get out of the city. You're a young kid, pre-internet time, get to see a different part of the country, a much different part of the country than New York, Brooklyn, where I grew up, and uh, there was a certain charm to it. Now I know that there is a whole underbelly of bad. I have friends who have worked in professional baseball and minor league baseball. I covered enough minor league baseball in Trenton in, 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 in independent ball with the Long Island Ducks and so on and so forth where, you know, if there's not a lot of money. The lifestyle isn't great. Uh, sometimes the players are truly treated like assets and even those that are the jewels of all the assets, you wonder why they get treated a certain way. And it's a, a tough career path because what do you get out of this outside of personal development if you don't make it? You don't make a lot of money. And if you're not going to stay in baseball, uh, how good on the resume is playing for the Brooklyn Cyclones or the Syracuse Nationals uh, going to do you down the road? That's debatable. But what Greg Larson's going to bring to the table is he was a clubhouse attendant for the Aberdeen Ironbirds. And he, he's writing a book that uh, some believe might be the modern-day ball four for uh, minor league baseball. And you know the way it's written, it's almost cinematic, where uh, this could be a movie. And, and Greg's going to join me in just a little bit, and we're going to get his take on minor league baseball, his thoughts on the changes, the lifestyle. Even though he wasn't a player, as a clubhouse attendant, you did it all. You were interacting with all these guys. You see a lot. You hear a lot. You experience a lot. And I think when you get to hear Greg's story and some of his thoughts on minor league baseball, it's going to be uh, one of these segments that it sets up our 2021 season together. And we both hopefully learn a little bit and uh, develop stronger more educated opinions about whether we like what's going on with minor league baseball 
or you know perhaps uh, you know there's some things that the change that was brought about by Rob Manfred and the owners, uh, a lot of controversy and debate about why that happened. Uh, you know, maybe we learned something uh, negative about it. We'll see. So, you know, a lot to talk about there. As far as the big league club, uh, this is, has not been a great, very disjointed start to the regular season. Not much has changed. And like I said, there's not much that I could say differently from the short on Friday about where the club is. Uh, you've, you've basically lost half your games to either COVID outbreak or rain out. Uh, you know, the team has not looked great. Uh, the starting pitching has been really good, and that's a great sign. The bullpen, unfortunately, smells of 2019, and you saw a little bit more of 2019 Edwin Diaz yesterday in the ninth inning. I, I, we could talk about the offense being fine, but you saw the brownouts. You know, One of the things I talked about in spring training and as we went to preview the season is my hope was that this offense wouldn't be prone to the brownouts that we saw because I thought it was a good offense in 2019 too and 2020, of course, but you saw some brownouts and sometimes against pitching that you would have to question. Now, Trevor Rogers, top prospect, first-round pick. You know, Maybe we'll look back and say, you know what, that's as much the pitcher as it is the Mets offense, but they certainly don't look confident out there. Guys like Conforto, you know, McNeil's got off to a slow start outside of the home run. Lindor hasn't been uh, uncorked yet. Uh, Alonzo okay, but still, you know, same thing with Dom Smith, and, and we could go up and down the line. Uh, not not exactly the start to the Steve Cohen era that I think everybody thought was going to happen. And look, there's a couple of things that I'm going to say here before we get to Greg Larson and Clubby. First, Steve Cohen. I see all the little snarky comments in the media. Up, oh, same old Mets. Doesn't matter who the owner is. Nobody thought Steve Cohen was coming in and waving a magic wand. Nobody thought that he was going to pitch out of the bullpen. He wasn't going to be like the Pope and put his hand on Edwin Diaz and all ills were going to go away. You know, this is not like, uh, you know, Jesus bringing Lazarus back to the dead for here. It's just an owner. He's infusing something that the Mets desperately needed, which uh, financial foundation and stability. And uh, the real benefit of Steve Cohen ownership is not going to be seen after five games. And it's not going to be seen by pain and suffering and, and things that have been part of the Mets history and every team. With heartbreak. I mean, the Texas Rangers were, what, a couple outs away from a World Series. How painful is that loss? And, and nobody talks about them in the same vein. So I really hate, because you and get ready, because you're going to see a lot of it. Anytime something bad happens to the Mets, no matter how good this season is, you're going to see the snark, oh, doesn't matter who the owner is, same old Mets, give up. Because they remember what I tell you. There's no benefit in you being happy. I said this before. There's no benefit in you being happy to the media, especially as the Mets narrative. The Mets narrative going more Red Sox, Yankees, not good for the media, LOL narrative, because that's what they want. That's an easy column to write. And uh, you see it, especially with the Knicks in the NBA. You know, you got a portion of this, especially if you get to the national media, that just wants to have their their whipping post. And, and they want you. They want you and they want to react and they want to see videos of you in pain. They want to see our friend Frank the Tank from Barstool Sports you know, screaming and yelling in the camera and breaking stuff and whatever it is, that's all fine. We could have fun with that stuff. But 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 again, that's not what you deserve. And and that's not what this show is all about. This show is serious business. We can have fun here. This show is more serious business. So on to the more serious things. I, I think the thing that has stood out, if you want to say one thing, and, you know, I, I don't think it's a surprise, but maybe we're seeing Jacob deGrom hit it to the next level. And what was 80% of his 
outs with strikeouts, even in this modern game of swings and misses, that's impressive. I looked at DeGrom's numbers since 2018, and he's got a 190 ERA+. plus. It's amazing. 190 ERA+, plus, but a 210 ERA. And you start to look at it historically. And even if you go to Seaver, 69, 70, 71, and some of the early years, this might be a stretch that when you put the era of ballparks and offense, this might be that more more impressive than Seaver. We haven't seen this too often. Yeah, you had think about it. I'm I'm not old enough to really remember Doc in '85. I came in a little later in the '80s as a fan, and I was young. So could you really count my maturity of what I was observing and understanding that? But you had Doc, and you had a brief stretch with R.A. Dickey and Santana with real dominant stretches. You don't really have a lot of this. You have, you know, Matt Harvey went through maybe a little bit, very brief, but nothing like three or four years. You know, might maybe have a month, maybe a half a season, something like that. We haven't seen this here in a long time, and maybe ever. You're you're up there when you start to look at the numbers and you start to look at the results. Pedro Martinez, late nineties. Roger Clemens in Toronto and Houston. You know, throw the steroids out, whatever you think about it. Greg Maddox, early years in Atlanta. Uh, Sandy Koufax, the last three, four years of his career. Uh, you could even maybe go out there, and, and and maybe this is even a better comp I'm looking up here. is, uh, And he's probably even better than Roy Holiday, uh, late career Philadelphia, when he seemed like uh, nobody could hit him. Probably better than him. And yeah, you've got the narrative about the wins and the lack of run support. And I mean, that's just one of those things that you can't explain. It's it just, if the offense is going to have a brownout, other than the fact that because DeGrom is a number one starter and he's facing the other team's number one starter, you would think most nights, maybe that explains some of it. But it's not, because even though Trevor Rogers is a promising pitcher, you wouldn't put him up there with a Verlander or a Scherzer or one of those guys. But uh, maybe we're seeing DeGrom take it to the next level. We're seeing that everything come together, where you're at a point in your, in, in, in your career where even on a bad night, like you saw in Philadelphia, when he's throwing majority fastballs and you knew he wasn't perfect or even close to being who he normally is. And he just, they didn't score off of him. And then you got, uh, you know, Chisenhall just basically walked into a fastball yesterday and that was it. I mean, think about it. That was it. Guy walked into a ball. Sometimes that happens. It doesn't matter if you're Cy Young, that old uh, corny saying. Once in a while, these are major league players, they're going to walk into something. So, that's something exciting. Uh, you know, the media and the and the national media would love to see uh, no one ever score a run for DeGrom ever again so they could laugh at him, laugh at you, and go, oh, shucks. They love the Charlie Brown narrative, uh, but that's not what we're here about. So, uh, again, the fact that the starting pitching has been so good without Carrasco, without Syndergaard, uh, you know, with, with Peterson having a bad first outing, and let's see how he does against Philadelphia this week. Uh, that is something that, the offense brownouts because the, the the kind of players they have there Conforto struggles. He's lost in that deep forest right now. Uh, you got to think though those are fixable with what you could just get better. Bad starting pitching or pitchers that can't be good starting pitchers. You can't. You re, you really can't fix that. And uh, that's a really good sign. And I always believe everything starts with the starting pitching, and everything else around it is is you know almost like the planets around the sun. Uh, you know, the starting pitching of the sun, that's where everything starts and ends. And uh, you, you you can't get away from that. And the fact that that's been a really big gold star through a week, 
albeit a truncated week, is something to be really excited about. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Greg Larson, Clubby Baseball, a minor league baseball memoir. You can go on Twitter at Clubby Baseball. Clubbybook.com is the website. We're going to talk about the return of minor league baseball, the good, the bad, the ugly. This guy lived it. He was in the trenches. And even though it's not a New York Mets affiliate story, the Aberdeen Ironbirds are part of the New York Penn League, and the Brooklyn Cyclones are in that league. And he could give us a great take on his thoughts about the new world of minor league baseball. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. We're back, and minor league baseball is returning. It's returning in just a few weeks, and I thought this early season we could do a feature, and joining me is Greg Larson. You could check him out at clubbybook.com. His new book, Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir, is out at Clubby Baseball on Twitter. And Greg, welcome to the program and I'll tell you what, before we get into your story, which I think a lot of people will see is, is really the, the heart and soul of what minor league baseball is all about. It's not MILB.com. It's not analytics. It's not all that right. stuff. Um, baseball in the minor leagues was gone for a year. And I know that you have some good and some bad stories to share with your experience there. But I remember as a kid going to you know, Rochester and Pawtucket and Scranton with my dad and my brother and, and my family, uh, on summer vacation trips, just to see a different part of the country. Growing up in the city, fresh air, open space. It's way different than Shea Stadium, growing up a Mets fan. A lot of charm. And uh, those cities are in areas, some of them are not getting baseball back. I'm curious your thoughts. Baseball will be back on May 4th. It's going to be a completely different minor leagues. And uh, there's a lot of controversy about how valuable the structure is. So as someone who lived it, what were your thoughts not seeing any minor league baseball last year and kind of um you know what you anticipate the new minor leagues to be yeah i like a lot of the changes that major league baseball is making with the minor leagues they are getting rid of the dues system for players which i think is great for the play the dues for i mean as a clubby i was making hand over fist from the dues and the tips but it was bad for the players and the players got got slight salary increases i mean you know rob manfred likes to tout the 38 to 72 percent increase sounds (laughs) a lot better than it is that works out to usually like you make it $1 and I give you right. two. That's a 50% increase. And I love when people do stats. You know, these days right. with, with politics, science, health, baseball, everything's a stat. I go, wait a minute, that headline doesn't match up. So exactly. that's funny how you put that. That's true. I mean, when you look at the raw numbers for a single A guy, that looks like going from $290 a week to $400 a week. I mean, he, yep. most of these guys are still making less than minimum wage, poverty level salaries. I am... I think a lot of players have agreed with me and that I think contraction of minor league teams is a good thing because a lot of those facilities were not set up to handle a, a professional baseball team. And a lot of those municipalities did not have the, the resources to, you know, to be associated with a major league brand. And I mean, I'm sad that the New York Penn league that the, that Clobie took place in is gone, 
but there were a lot of stadiums there that just didn't make the cut. And I think it's a good change. Absolutely. And uh, is it overstated how important some of these teams are to some of these cities? Now I I was a little upset. I'm a big, I'm you know, Trenton was always good to me. I used to cover the, it was the easiest way to cover prospects for both the Mets and the Yankees. And they were, I love the bat dog, love the people there. They've been great to me. Can never say not. And that's not the case everywhere. Like, you know, you know, sometimes clubbies are media guys, you know, there's politics and all this. And, oh, yeah. you know, some nobody like me who's not affiliated with the Daily News or the Post, you know, may not be welcome with open arms. And you, you got to wonder, well, did they did they make the right contraction? Um, mm. And is and, and are we overstating the benefits of minor league baseball to these cities that, you know, maybe it's more charm than it is reality? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, yes. I mean, look, in the mid part of the 20th century, we had even more minor league baseball teams. And does that mean that cutting all of those teams that we had in places like Rock Hill, South Carolina? I lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I had no idea that there used to be a minor league baseball team there because it didn't impact the culture of the city all these years on. So I think it's just like the traditionalist view of baseball that sometimes we can't help but hold on to nostalgia, even when it keeps the game from advancing the way it should. I agree with you. And I have Greg Larson with me, clubbybook.com. The book is clubby. And I think it's a really interesting, and I'll say this, Greg, you know, some people have said, maybe this is like the ball four of minor league baseball. That's high praise late Jim yeah. Bouton. Um, I don't know if people are going to be as mad at you. You can tell us as they were at Jim <laughs> Bouton back in 1970, but um, there's talk of creating backfields and labs and, and really nobody cares about the outcome. And, and look, nobody gets crazy about whether the Syracuse Mets or the Aberdeen the Orioles affiliate wins or loses, except maybe, look, I've been in Brooklyn. Like I grew up in Brooklyn, Cyclones. Uh, one of the fun nights I've had is that first season right before 9-11 when they, when they went to the championship. I don't know why. It was, it was cool. And, and when they won a couple of years ago, it was cool and it meant something. Maybe Brooklyn's different. But uh, do you think the, the bad that comes with the grind is a lot of bad? But you have to learn what baseball is about. And it's this travel and the grind and competition and, and trying to push through when it's hot in August. Do you think that this idea that by sanitizing minor league baseball, you know, there is going to be harm. I'm not saying the pay is, the pay is a big thing and the, and the health and the, and the nutrition. It's all garbage. It's amazing how, you know, athletes are treated. But taking away some of that, if that's the goal long term, um, I wonder if that's a good thing. I wondered your thoughts on that. I think there's already such a disparate culture within every clubhouse, within every team year to year. I mean, a perfect example when sometimes guys just don't care about the outcome either way. Like in in 2013, when I was in the Aberdeen Ironbirds um, clubhouse, we were in MCU Park in Brooklyn and we were fighting against Brooklyn to play um, in the playoffs to win the McNamara division title. And I remember talking to the Brooklyn clubby after we took two games from the Cyclones and the Brooklyn club, he said that all the guys in that clubhouse were so thrilled that the Cyclones had <laughs> lost because it meant that they would not have to go to the playoffs and play more. And wow. sometimes teams in, in our clubhouse, we were fighting for our lives to try and get to the playoffs. Wow. And it just changes from year to year. The guys, it's this strange, this strange paradox where guys in the clubhouse, it means more to them than anything. But at the same time, nobody kind of gives a shit at the same time. Like, yeah it's a strange paradox, but I, that's kind of what makes it beautiful too. It's interesting. Cause you think, and this goes back to the development part. You think at that point in their careers, more baseball's good, but maybe they feel like, Hey, I could get more batting practice. I could go to my coach back home. 
it's another week in Brooklyn, you know, whatever it may be. It's interesting you said that because the other argument, and I, you're a perfect person to talk about because you saw these guys, reducing the teams is going to give less opportunity. The Seth Lugos that were late round picks, the Jacob DeGroms maybe uh, that may not get a shot. I'm not sure with scouting, there's, if, if there's talent, they may find a way to, to shove these guys in. But look, I remember a player for the Cyclones, great guy, has gone on to a different career. The minute the Mets brought in their fifth round pick, and he was an all-star in the New York Penn League a few years earlier than you were there, he was out and he retired. So I wonder, you know, did you see, because there is value in being an athlete. It's on a resume. Mm -hmm. People like it. Do you make context? What do you see? Do you think that's overstated? Because some of these guys are wasting their time, but do you learn as much as the poverty's there? If you could get through that, do you learn anything or you think that's also overstated? You do. I think they do learn certain skills, but there is almost this necessary. Um, I, I don't know how to put it. Um, the, the sacrifice to the whole, Let, let's say a ball player that gets cut when he's 23 years old and he has, maybe he didn't graduate college, which is likely because if a guy actually graduates college, they lose all of their draft leverage whatsoever. A team is going to draft them much lower and give them a lower signing bonus because they have no al- al- alternative. So they're almost disincentivized from getting their college degree if they're a professional ball player. And then on top of it, maybe that's all they know how to do is to play baseball. And then when they're told they can't do that anymore, I see a lot of guys who they wind up spending a lot of time in indie ball, um, which to me is, I think, overly romanticized. Yeah, I well, I agree. Unless you really believe that you want to get into coaching. I mean, think about it. You were in the league two years, New York Penn League. Mm-hmm. Um, just off the top of your head, let's play a little game here. Yep. How many players right now off the top of your head, three are, are in ba- uh, major league baseball right now, Trey Mancini, Mike Yastrzemski, Stephen Brault, Josh Hader, and a couple cup of coffee guys. Jimmy was Conforto, maybe Conforto was there in tw- uh, tight. Maybe not. Maybe no, 14, I, ne- I don't there. never right. saw Conforto. Those are the right. four guys that I've seen really establish themselves. In right. The Think about that. Four yes. guys. So and the I saw. Are, hundred literally a couple hundred guys in my time there guys were just churning in and out Uh, did you know when some I mean at that level it's very early and look it's funny because from a New York side Brooklyn has always been because of Brooklyn the Mets they would also put guys who were higher level with no future down there to beat beat up and win that's mm -hmm. an old now with new ownership I don't know if that's going to be the case anymore but um you know did you know right away uh those guys uh, maybe not just those specific guys, but a guy had something where there's a shot. Maybe they weren't going to be Mike Stremsky or Hader. Uh, you know, some of those are really good players that you mentioned, but they had a shot maybe at that point. It was more obvious in the 2013 team because we had so much success as a team. The 2012 team, it was a shit show. I mean, there was nobody cared. There was, we were 22 and a hundred. I mean, nobody cared. Josh Hader was on the 2012 team. To me, right. he was, I think he was 18 years old. I mean, this guy was coming into the clubhouse talking about prom. I think I'm pretty sure he, <laughs> he got drafted immediately after high school. Right. And so that's like some of those guys that come immediately Crazy. from high school to that clubhouse. Mikey Stremsky and Trey Mancini, they were more obvious uh, guys that had futures. Right. Absolutely. Greg Larson, the book is Clubby. Uh, interesting book, Clubby Baseball on Twitter, clubbybook.com. That's where you want to get it. And with minor league baseball coming back, I think 
what Greg has done here is kind of take a, a what a true story. But it sounds like in this book, you tried to make it interesting. I don't want to say like a movie. Maybe it is one day. You never know. Think big, right, Greg? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you tried to make it a story. So in theory, this could be if it was. I would read this. You might think it's fiction, right? Is that kind of how it is? That's how crazy some of the stuff is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people even talk about it. I mean, I think as an author, I think about things in terms of scenes in a movie. That's exactly how I think about it. And people look at it and it's rendered in such a in-person way that people, some people have even called it a novel. I'm like, hold on. This all really happened. You can ask the guys (laughs) in the clubhouse who were there. I mean, everything from guys fighting each other over music and taking baseball bats to each other's heads because they're fighting wow. over music. Everything from Dominican guys walking off the field in the middle of the game because they thought that they're going to get deported back to the Dominican. And, you know, wow. that was a somewhat common thing. A guy, uh, Enrico Jimenez, walked off the field in the middle of the game and tried to sneak on the team bus the next day up to Brooklyn because in what I've heard in the clubhouses and what I, the rumors is that that's a common way for those guys to escape into the mass of New York. Right. Is so they don't get deported back. I mean, there's Sanctu- all the sanctuary city, stuff. sanctuary city too. sanctuary right. city. I don't know if that was back then, but now you can't, you know, that's interesting. You bring up a really good point. Two big things is one, there's been talk about how good teams do with assimilating the Latino players. And I have to tell you, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for those guys because mm-hmm. I don't think people understand how hard it is to come here. And there was a film called Sugar. I don't know if you ever saw it. Oh, yes. Yep. And I thought that showed you how difficult it is. And there was a a recent pitcher for the Angels who quit because it wasn't for him. It's great being on the island or being whatever country you are. And, you know, $100,000 is like the end, you know, you take care of your whole village. Uh, But after that, you come here and, and it's different and there's food and there's culture and you're right, Brooklyn, you could find uh, Dominican type of uh, situations, restaurants, people, but Aberdeen, eh, not so much. Middle America, not so much. We know that there is race involved in certain towns. You know, look, I'm from New York. Easy for me to assimilate with someone from the Dominican or Puerto Rico or whatever it may be, but not so much some some places. So do you think that there's enough consistent structure for these guys because they come from these academies, 16 years old? And now you're expected to perform. And look, Wilmer Flores was known to Mets fans when he was 16. When Mm -hmm. he left a couple of years ago, it was like he was here forever because of the internet. So it's not like they're obscure anymore. And there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of expectations and the money's great for them back home. But there's nothing else. They're, they're, They're children. They're children, yes. literally. Sometimes, I mean, literally children. I mean, I had uh, Jorge Rivera in our clubhouse. He stopped going to school after second grade to focus on baseball. And right. some of those academies, they, they tout the fact that they focus on overall education. I think that's mm. personally bullshit. I think, yep. I mean, what incentive do they have to focus on anything other than baseball? None. No matter how beautiful those facilities are. I don't think there's a lot of great, I did not, in the Orioles organization, I did not see a lot of great structure to help those guys with language, with finances, with, I mean, just one small anecdote, Harry Marino, who is now the um, executive director for advocates for minor leaguers. He was on the 2013 Aberdeen Ironbirds. He had to drive one of our pitchers to a Western union so he could send money back home immediately. Harry didn't know exactly why. All he knew is that that, player needed to get that money back home before game time so these guys are literally in all of their Orioles gear they missed the first pitch so they could send that money back home right 
why was a pitch, why was another player doing that for him? And why wasn't there some sort of help for that player instead? I mean, it's a crazy situation. Absolutely. And look, you were the clubhouse attendant in a lot of ways. You were everything. You're doing the laundry, you're a janitor. And I look at that lifestyle and I look at you getting involved and uh, look, you've got, you know, anybody could go and see Greg on LinkedIn. He's a writer and he's doing some really nice things uh, in a different world altogether. I get the ball player going in there. There's the romance. That's mm-hmm. let's give it a shot. Maybe for a year or two, if you could afford to give it a shot, but you had a lot, you, you lost relationships. You, you became, I've, I've, I saw you on the DA show. You felt like you weren't becoming a better person. You were a ball player without any of the, the ball player. Mm-hmm. Um, why'd you get involved with it? And, and I connect you and what you talk about in this book and how your life kind of went topsy turvy with how easily these, prospects that are not prospects how you know they could get out of this and be lost you seem like you had a plan uh maybe you stumbled into it but these guys do they all have plans you know i I definitely did stumble into it i mean i i went into it unconsciously there's a part of me that thought that i would have like some rudy moments where somebody Mm. would tap me on the shoulder and i would get some at bat because i would take batting practice with the team sometimes and I would think like, ooh, maybe if they just let me come in as a backup shortstop or something. I mean, sure. I never wanted to admit that to myself, but that was like part of my plan. And I thought that I was going to move up the ranks of the clubby system and be a clubby for the Baltimore Orioles. It really wasn't until not bad money, by the way, not bad money. Uh, no, a lot of stuff that's not reported to the IRS. Oh but, yes, but not a bad money for sure. The money. Uh, Charlie is definitely... Samuels is a is a legend in New York for that one. So <laughs> right, <laughs> the money is maybe a little too good. Right, um, really good, really good. <laughs> so that's it really crazy. wasn't until about halfway through that first season that I realized that oh man, there's a story here, and I just started writing notes, and then I, at the end of two seasons, I had 285 pages of notes that I turned into a book. Did anybody question similar? You, I remember Bouton writing ball four, and I don't think people questioned him or maybe they noticed some things. And I keep going back to ball four because I, I think it's been thrown out there and I probably saw it online, but, but it does, as you're looking at this, talking to you, there is this, you know, pulling the curtain back, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we don't, unless you've been in these, I've had conversations with agents. I've had conversations with former ball players. I mean, Back before your time, there was an, an awful executive that treated minor leaguers horribly with the Mets called Tony Bernazard. Awful mm. things. And I remember talking to one or two minor leaguers and some of the things you bring up, the nutrition being awful. But um, it's amazing how um, these assets, we keep hearing their assets, right? Right. I don't see, even for the Trey Mancini's, did you feel they were treated like assets at all? Like a valuable pieces of, uh, of currency, so to speak? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Because so often it was almost treated with this, there's this phrase called the boatload mentality that a lot of executives use to describe signing Dominican guys, or anybody from the Caribbean, where we're just going to sign as many guys for as cheaply as possible. And if a few of them pan out, then we have made a good investment. That's how it felt with everybody except for the bonus babies, so to speak. I mean, there was like this sunk cost fallacy where a bonus baby drafted in the first couple of rounds, who's already had seven figures invested in them, they're going to get way more chances. It is not always a meritocracy. Even if a guy has a better ERA at that level, uh, sometimes he'll just get released and a guy with a five and a half ERA will get moved up just because uh, of politics and we, nobody ever knows why uh, the story i told you guy had an all-star season in brooklyn kurt Nuenice was signed was signed i think as a fifth round pick now he went on to play briefly in the big leagues 
he was in. The other guy was out. Nobody questioned you. You're taking notes. You seem like a smart guy. Clearly, you're intelligent. That's sometimes, and I had one player tell me, uh, intelligence and well-roundedness as an athlete, not viewed well by the coaching staff <laughs> and management. It's true. Guy was into music. He was smart. And he was talented. He was a talented player. He didn't make it. But he, they were always feeling like those other things, which are so critical to because right. the odds are against you, they will look that badly. So did anyone question you? Did you look too smart? Do you agree with that statement? Furthermore, for, for the most part, yes, I do agree with that statement. But in our clubhouse, it was almost like for as much flack as Jim Bouton got for you know telling a, a clubhouse story that this is supposed to be a secretive world, what happens here stays here. Um, Everybody and their grandma in a clubhouse nowadays is talking about wanting to write a book. Guys say, oh, I should write a book about, you know, all these seasons in minor league baseball. 99% of the, right. Most guys don't do it. So to them, I was just another guy who was talking about it, but then I actually happened to do it. And what I found is that all of the guys who are in those clubhouses are grateful for the fact that the story is being told in this way, that the only flack I've gotten is from front offices. That's it. The players who are in the clubhouses are thrilled about it, at least as far as they've told me. Right. That's interesting. Do you think, and I have a Greg Larson, author of the book Clubby with me. Do you think that um, with stuff like this getting out, there's been some changes. I know a lot of politics and you mentioned Manfred. Do you think there might be any change elicited uh, if the more people read it, the more that they see what's going on? We have no idea if some of these changes in the new minor league season are going to really be real. We don't know. And you're not in there anymore, but do you think any of this could get out there? And have, you know, are you a change agent, if I guess is the word I would use? I would hope so. I mean, when I first wrote this book, I wrote it completely as an expose. I wasn't even in a, a character in the book. It was pure journalism. Then I realized that that was very, not only was it ineffective, it was also boring. Try. Yeah. Right. But this, um, I think the same thing is happening in clubhouses all over baseball. But to dramatize it in this way and actually show what it's actually like inside of the clubhouse my goal is for people to actually understand what that system is like and maybe put some heat on major league baseball to improve those systems even more than what they're doing now. Cause right now it's just lipstick on a pig. Who's going to play you in the movie. Do you have an actor in mind? Everybody. If you're African-American, it's Denzel Washington. You got Denzel. Can't play. You could change. He could play. You could change the character. But what, what, what is, is it Matt David? Is it, you know, who is it? You know, like, what, I got to go back to somebody at 22, man. I don't even know. I, oh, I got to say I don't Justin probably, Timberlake. Yeah. Right. They're probably, well, there's probably some kid in a twilight uh, uh, knockoff movie. That's going to play you 10 years from now or <laughs> right. a, on the Disney channel. Uh, Greg Larson is with me. You know, you, um, I, recently someone came out of a book about living in the vet and I saw that you lived right. in the clubhouse a little bit. And uh, I mean, I, I have someone who, who works in, in minor league baseball, works in Charlotte, doesn't do clubhouse stuff, but it's just amazing. The money is so tough. The, you know, it's, so you, you truly were, um, and you were into this, like living in the clubhouse, kind of, you know, living a life that is completely unsustainable. Uh, right. And when baseball season's over, I mean, the money stops. Like, were you all, all concerned? Uh, you know, this is probably a nice party for a year or two, but it's obviously setting you back. Now you've used some of the tools to do something now, but I don't, it doesn't sound like that was the case back in, in when you first got in. Oh yeah. I mean, that was part of the, that was part of the trouble in my relationship is that she could see that I was getting sucked into something that was not healthy for me. I mean, in the off season, I was, I was putting on a ton of weight. I was getting fat. I was drinking booze at 11 AM. I was playing a bunch of video games. I was not working. 
And then it was almost like unconsciously I'd set myself up to be in a situation where I had no choice, but to go back into minor league baseball. It was like, it's an addiction that I think paralleled a lot of players where a part of me knew that there was no future in it for me. And a part of me knew that it was bad for me, but I just couldn't help myself, man. Like the highs of getting on the field and putting on a Jersey sometimes and taking batting practice. It was too much to, to walk away from. Yeah, absolutely. What was the, best town that you uh, enjoyed going to was it Aberdeen was it you know Brooklyn was it somewhere else I mean what did you enjoy what road trip did you like well Aberdeen is a town nothing mm-hmm. there but the stadium uh, Ripken Stadium was probably the best in the Be- New York beautiful League. yeah um going to Brooklyn I really like the whole atmosphere of Coney Island you have the sound you have all of the lights that was my favorite atmosphere to travel and that's to. not and a I'm good not neighborhood though pandering. ironically that's not a good neighborhood so people <laughs> yeah. coming out of town they go oh, this is New York that's not New York City not a great neighborhood I think they try to build it up a little bit but not a place that you want to take the subway right outside uh MCU right. Park at, at the midnight, stadium so was right. fun as heck though yep not any and not an easy uh ballpark to hit especially in the cold uh didn't seem like a lot of home runs went out. It was interesting. And uh, it's funny. Do, do, they, do the players, knowing how analytics are, and you were pre-analytics, but mm-hmm. did they get caught up in numbers or were they very process-oriented? Well, I'm always curious, minor leaguers, like, um, because one of the things a buddy of mine has told me in, in, in minor league baseball is that there's a lot of rigging the numbers with him being, you know, he gets pressure to make a, a scoring call. And part of that is to tra- change the numbers. So I'm curious that's front office stuff, but I'm curious if right. you saw some of that stuff going on. I did not see that in the Orioles organization. I mean, I saw a lot more old school mentality of uh, come in, put in the work. It, it was more of that, yep. um, you know, guys talking about the hitting coaches, for example, telling players not to spend so much time in the cages because it's just going to make them more tired. I didn't right. see it. I saw a lot of that advice as opposed to uh, focusing on the, you know, analytics instead. Right. Ripken uh, uh, is a big name. Uh, did you have any, uh, did you walk away with an impression of Cal's, you know, ownership group there? Cal uh, may as well have been Bigfoot to me. I mean, I yep. saw the guy twice. So, in, right. but, you know, he had a lot of stuff going on in his personal life. A lot of people don't know this. Even, you know, hardcore Orioles fans don't know about the, the kidnapping of his mom in June right. 2012. That's- I remember that story, right? So that was, and so he had a lot more going on on his plate than uh, meeting the clubby, <laughs> right? That's for sure. Was it a well-run organization, though? Did you feel that you know, other than the obvious minor league baseball nuances that every team has, it sounds like from the stadium, um, you know, for every, and I don't want to dump on Hudson Valley, but Hudson Valley is a lot different than Aberdeen. Oh yeah, I mean that's you know that's right up you know 40, 40 minutes north of, of Brooklyn, 40, 50 minutes north, a lot different than Brooklyn and Aberdeen and things like that, you know? Oh yeah. I mean, if I do have any criticisms of an organization in the book, it's more to the Orioles front office than the Ironbirds front office for sure. Or the Ripken stadium group, they were not making money even in um, 2012, I think 2013, they're more in, they're more in the black, but I know for a fact in 2012, almost every single department was in the red. So, and I know that Cal Ripken was trying to sell the team in the last couple of years. So that, that's the insight that I have. What did you now that now you you've, you've had the experience, you did the project. I always like to ask someone who does a book, what was like your biggest takeaway? Was there any surprises? Obviously you lived it. Was there any surprises that you took away after you wrote the book? You know, maybe something you like when this project comes up, that's like your go-to, like this really stood out to you. 
I know that might be a tough question because you lived it. You're not, you didn't research it. You lived it. But when you're writing and put it to paper, did something surprise you as you came outside of yourself and you started looking at it? Did you look have any kind of takeaways that were different than you expected? Maybe that's the way I would phrase it. Yeah. Yeah. I think recently actually, because it is a memoir and it is focused a lot on other players, but it is, I'm the person who transforms in the story. The thing that surprises me is that I thought that I was a cynical person. I thought I fell out of love with baseball. I thought I didn't care about the game. But what I've realized recently is that the way I love the game has just transformed. Like, I don't care about the numbers. I don't care about the stats or the standings or anything like that. It's the, it's the people in the game that I'm interested in. I mean, I grew up a Twins fan. I have no idea what the record is. I don't know what the Orioles record is. I don't really care. But seeing somebody like Trey Mancini come back from cancer, that's a story that I do care about. So I, I realized that I'm not as cynical about the game as I thought. My love of it has just gotten deeper. But you're not, you're not going to be like a super fan where, you know, forget the stats. You're not living and dying with the Twins or the Orioles every day. The no, one, the, no. If the Twins lose a big postseason game, you're not crushed. No. You still love baseball, but you love it maybe more macro. Is that more 20,000 feet above or, you know, from I a standpoint? I would say the exact opposite. I think it's the opposite. It's actually closer, like less field level, more in the clubhouse, asking the guy how they're doing after the game. That That's field. interesting. Do you, uh, as someone who's been a baseball fan, worked in baseball, I think sometimes the whole demise of baseball is overstated. I think there's problems. I think some of the problems are fixable by teams competing. I mean, it's a simple thing, teams competing. You could change the shift. You could, you know, do all the things you want to do with the rules. NFL has done it. NHL has done it. NBA's done it. We see what the game is different from 25 years ago. But going into a season, even when you may not win a championship and actively saying, I'm just going to be, you know, purgatory is bad. You can't sell that. And I'm listening to a guy like you talk about Trey Mancini. Um, you know, Mets fans have had nostalgia about George Theodore and guys like that, that nobody really cares about outside of Mets fans, but made those seasons fun. Um, I don't feel like teams are trying to, you know, make those narratives, those stories, those things like that, um, you know, so to speak. It's it's one of those, right. uh, hey, throw it out there, McDonald's Family Sunday, forget about what's on the field. I don't think that works. Yeah, I don't know, man. It feels like there are a lot of fewer personalities in the game because personalities can bring people out to the ballpark no matter how poorly a team is doing. And it feels like something about the unwritten rules of the game stifles big personalities like you know i was reading about the 86 um world series and i think about people like oil can boyd these outspoken dudes who i don't know maybe the the game doesn't foster those personalities as much because you could you could have a a cellar dweller team be attractive if they have the big personalities yeah and you gotta color it up and, and compete like look i know 77 wins versus 69 means nothing analytically but maybe they're in the race in theory um, till August. I know the media is not going to see it that way. I think that's part of the problem. It's different. You know, uh, you know, you talked about your experience. I mean, I know it's minor league baseball, but the wins and losses, and I know it's not professional, didn't matter, but you still had experiences. You guys did. Can you translate that to the fans in a professional environment? Um, Is it still going to be translated to the fans where they use these laboratories in minor league baseball? Mm. A lot of interesting things. Uh, Do you, do you like how they sanitize the names? I thought they was character to New York Penn League and to the International League and the McNamara division. I know that nobody may know what the hell any of that means, but right. I feel like it's it's so uncreative. 
It's like yeah. the default setting in a video game. It's like, come on. hundred percent. Did you, the characters away, I would have done something different. Do you agree? Yeah, right now, what, it's AA East and AAA East West and, and all yeah, this? Yeah, it's, it's mean, totally different. It's all gone. It's all gone. It's To me, that's just the further corporatization of the game from Rob Manfred, only Karen, not being a fan of the game. I mean, for right. Bud Selig and all of his heirs, the, at least he was a fan of baseball. And I, I don't like the sanitization of those names at all. What's next for you? You, you write this book, you're out there promoting it. It's a great story. I, I joke about a movie, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to be, you could go so many ways, change agent, you know, you could go entertainment. You obviously, if it's successful, you could write more, maybe not. I don't know what your interests are. What's next for Greg Lars? What, what do you got going on? Yeah. I think a lot of people see me as a clubby who wrote a book. I'm an author who happened to be a clubby one time. So I'm, I'm working on my next book right now. I mean, I, I have a, I used to be an English professor. I have a master's in fine arts and creative writing. I'm an author. What the hell so. are you doing in Aberdeen clubhouse? I got to tell you, <laughs> I know a lot of people in baseball. That was not the place for you. And I mean, I, I even tell everybody, cause I, I know professional athletes. I've, I've met guys like you. I have friends that are still doing not clubhouse work, but in minor league baseball, it's, it's a difficult industry. Media right. and sports are romanticized. They are not good in this day and age of paying your bills and having job security. Oh, yeah. uh, not even a little bit. And with retail going away, there's not a lot of back, not a lot of plan B's out there. So God bless you on that because you are not, I mean it. And I mean this sincerely, you're not common who comes out of those uh, jobs, whether it be in the media department or the clubhouse. I see a lot of people. I follow up on guys. I know from the long Island ducks, from the cyclones, some of them, I'm like, how are you, how are you making a living, buddy? How are you yeah. making a living, you know? Well, the thing so. is, there's a fluke in that that was my first job out, out of college in 2011. I thought, you know what? I could do worse than to work in professional baseball. And then I just got, I got sucked into this wild world. So what's next for me is I'm literally, I am trying to, my goal is to turn Clubby into a book one day or into a, a movie a one movie. day, rather. Well, right. We'll try to help you out that. Clubbybook.com at Clubby Baseball. You got any events coming up? Anything that you want to let the listeners know about before I let you go? Not any events that I want to put out publicly. I just want people to go find extra content on clubbybook.com. We have a bunch of blog posts. We have the clubby podcast. We have videos. We have a bunch of behind the scenes stuff, deleted scenes. Anything you want can be found on that website. We'll absolutely uh, throw it out there. You're going to have Mets fans coming at you now. And about, you know, when this comes out in about a day or so, you're going to have them coming out with you. And uh, you had some great stories, even though it's an Orioles uh, situation. New York Penn League, uh, near and dear to fans' hearts. And minor league baseball is a topic for any franchise. And I think mm-hmm. you gave some really interesting takes and, and something that I didn't think about. You, you're one of the few that agree with the changes because you lived in it. So that's right. an interesting take. Greg, be well. Thank you for your time. And let's do this again. All right, my friend? Of course. Thank you, Mike. And that's Greg Larson. The book is Clubby. A minor league baseball memoir. Clubby Baseball uh, is the Twitter at Clubby Baseball. Clubbybook.com. Interesting stuff. Didn't expect him. You know, there's no romanticization of minor league baseball in this segment. So minor league baseball coming back May 4th. We'll see what it looks like. We'll see how it's uh, reviewed. uh, And away we go. All right, let's take a quick break and wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast loves catching up with Mets alumni. Hear former pitcher Doug Sisk talk about the 1986 team when he joined me for the 30th anniversary weekend on May 29th, 2016. No, you know what? We were no different than anybody else right now. It's just that right now, I think with all the cell phones, all the multimedia and all that, I mean, you can't get away with it. Back then, 
it's not that we tried to get away with anything or anything like that. It was just we were free-spirited. We did what it took to win the game on and off the field. If we needed to be prepared whatever way it was, everybody was different. We had guys who would drink some beer in the front of the plane. We had guys that would drink this or have fun. And the other guys were playing Trivial Pursuit in the middle of the plane. Everybody was different. And they all respected what we did. But there was never one time where none of us ever focused on the game of baseball. And Davey will tell you that 100%. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. We're back. Final thoughts. I thought that was fun. I have to tell you, and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Greg Larson was great. Uh, apologize for some of the uh, four-letter words. I don't think that I think they were benign enough where I left them in. Um, you know, we're we're a G-rated program, so technically I should bleep those out. But you know, I thought it took away from the flow of the conversation, and uh, I don't think I don't, I don't think they were were meant to be anything crude or what have you. They were just natural natural stream of conscious. So. Before I get an email, and obviously you can still email me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Just want to say apologize if that was something that bothered you or offended you or something like that. But um, he really gave us something to think about there. I went in, you know, I'm so against creating a laboratory versus minor league baseball. And I don't have a problem with cleaning up the affiliates. I feel horrible for places like Trenton. And to a certain degree, I wish Brooklyn was a little bit higher up so we could see a higher level of player, you know, versus them keeping Binghamton on, you know, but, but it is what it is. You get to see a minor league team and, and, you know, there's reasons for all this stuff. And the Mets really as a brand now from a minor league baseball perspective, truly it's, you know, St. Lucie the Flushing. You've got your St. Lucie affiliate and then you're going from Brooklyn uh, to Binghamton all the way up north to Syracuse and western New York and then you're coming back down to the big league club. So you're really close no matter where you are, much better than the days of New Orleans and Vegas and nothing against those cities, but you might as well be on the moon as a, as a East coast team uh, affiliate versus your triple a club. Uh, And it just doesn't make sense logistically, especially now with the taxi squad, you know, COVID protocols, you know, double headers, you know, with the way pitchers are where a guy gets shelled and you, you, you go to your bullpen and now you want to bring in a fresh arm. I hate the up and down, up and down, up and down, that kind of thing. Should have got into that a little bit with Greg. You know, he could you know, he could see the person side of this. Even though he wasn't in AAA where there's a lot of that up and down, up and down, uh, you got a good feel of what life is like in that environment. And as much as we want to glamorize it and you go to a Cyclones game, and I see plenty of diehard Cyclones fans that – Live and die with every pitch. It's it's kind of funny because you forget in those cities, that's that's their identity. Now, Brooklyn's part of a bigger city and the Mets and the Yankees. But for people in Brooklyn who are lifelong uh, Brooklynites who identify with the borough and, and maybe even rooted for the Dodgers at some point in some cases, you know, that's big for them. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with the Aberdeen superfan or the Syracuse uh, Mets superfan. You know, these are their towns. And, and just because that, you know, they lived and died and, and grew up in these areas and maybe didn't spread their wings like some other people and, and get out of that, what some might say, myopic uh, lifestyle of being in one place your whole life. There's nothing There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I That's what they're comfortable with, and there's a value to that, and there's a value to that connection in the community. And, uh, and I don't think baseball is about to die. Um, 
I, I think there's this connection. I think there's this certain uh, companionship to the game during the summer. I mean, look, yesterday, I uh, what was it? Yeah, yesterday, I had to do some yard work. I put the MLB.com app. I listened to Howie and Wayne Randazzo on the app while I was doing the lawn work. And then I watched the last three innings on the television. You could go back. You could record it and, and watch you know some pitches and at-bats. You got replay. You could do anything you want. I mean, you know, it, you don't do that just to any sport. You can't do that necessarily with the NFL. You can't do that with the NBA. You can't do that with the March Madness tournament. You, you know, that's a different, uh, you know, adrenaline, a different focus. Baseball's just there all summer, and it's like this buildup. It's, it's this marathon. And I'm not trying to be all nostalgic here, or I'm not trying to be poetic like, uh, you know, an old-time sports writer or, or Roger Angel or something like that. I'm not trying to do that. Um, I'm trying to, you know, continue to talk about what the connection is. And I think if teams just understood and built their teams while they were even in er you know, periods where they can't win and understood that and, and didn't commoditize it so overtly. And, and part of really, and I, I truly believe this, part of the reason why baseball has issues is that the media con- uh, commoditized it. The media is the one pouring cold water on your face. Because back in the late 80s, when I started watching baseball, no matter what the season was, there was a certain component of hope that you can write about because of narratives. Because the statistics weren't all there that threw uh, such cold reality in your face. Sometimes information, as much as it's power, there's a downside to it. And I'm not complaining about it. I'm not saying I'm anti-analytics. I'm not saying... Uh, this is bad stuff. And I'm not saying that I was a better fan or a better uh, you know, connection to the game back then. I think it was more innocent for everybody, from media on down. And we've lost that innocence, and how can we recapture that? I still think there's narratives and connections and stories that you could have, even in the face of cold, hard facts saying you stink and the best you're going to do is win 70 games. There's been some really fun seasons, and we talked about this with Devin Gordon where the Mets didn't make the playoffs in some fun moments. I mean, everyone's going to remember the R.A. Dickey Cy Young season. That was not a good Mets team. It was the Mets team that flopped down the stretch. Matt Harvey's Dark Knight season in 2013, not a good Mets team. But there's certain connections to certain players, and even those fans who are listening in the audience that grew up watching the Mets in terrible seasons of the 70s, you know, Lee Mazzilli, uh, or guys like that, you know, uh, you know, Craig Swan, there's some guys who just love certain members of those late 70s Mets teams when they were everything but good and they probably were about as far away from winning a championship as you could possibly get. Yet it was still a fun way to go to the ballpark, even though not everybody showed up. And, uh, you know, I, I don't buy into this, that baseball's going to become a niche sport. I saw the article a couple of weeks back by Tom Verducci. Everybody, you know, has to put numbers in its in its place, but also understand that building that relationship every year with your fan base where you can rebuild, but also give them entertainment. And it can't be about the fireworks or the bobbleheads or the slides in the back out in the outfield. It has to be about the ball club. And that's how you do it. Because you can't do it like the NBA. I don't think people are all going to be like the LeBron. Like There are people who are Bulls fans because of Michael Jordan. Never got it. I'm a Knicks fan growing up. I don't want to see Michael Jordan do well. I don't get it. I don't get rooting for a player. I don't get that. 
but look, they're spending money on their fans, so so be it. But I thought it was interesting. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, a clubby, a minor league baseball memoir, clubbybook.com. Greg Larson is the author. Um, I thought it was a good way to kick off a perfect day to do this. It was planned, and I wasn't sure when I'd run it. I thought maybe I'd wait a week or so. But uh, with the rain out, with the weather, with minor league baseball, just a little less than a month away, uh, I thought it was a perfect time to start to get back into a part of the game that we lost last year during the pandemic and never got it back. And then it, it has been transformed since then. Uh, and the pandemic has transformed some other things uh, in our world that hopefully we can you know, get, get it back to where it needs to be. So hopefully this new version of minor league baseball, uh, as you heard Greg Larson say, maybe there's some good to it and maybe it's not as bad of a thing as maybe even I thought going into the segment. So, Anyway, I want to thank Greg for joining us. Of course, I want to thank you guys for tuning in again. Hopefully, you got you know a little bit of a back-to-back. Not quite back-to-back, but two shows in one weekend. And like I said, we'll continue to uh, try to give you as much content as possible and try to you know get a flow of this podcast because sometimes Sunday to Sunday doesn't always work depending on the news cycle and the week. Uh, you can check me out all the time, of course, you guys know. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another show next week. Till then, take care, everybody. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, 
We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.